Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. In every episode, we'll have engaging conversations with WNL's expert faculty, bringing you again to the colonnade, even if you're hundreds of miles away, just like the conversations that happen every day after class here at WNL. You'll hear from your favorite faculty on fascinating topics and meet professors who can introduce you to new worlds and continue your journey of lifelong learning. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Joanna Bond, the Sydney and Francis Lewis Professor of Law. Joanna joined Washington and Lee in 2008. From 2016 to 19, she served as Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Law School. Her research focuses on international human rights law and gender in the law, including women's rights in Africa, domestic violence in Nepal, Cambodia, Ghana, Poland, Bulgaria, and Macedonia, sexual harassment in Poland and Bulgaria, maternal mortality as a human rights issue in Uganda and Mexico, trafficking in women, and a variety of issues concerning the United Nations treaty mechanisms. Joanna has a book coming out with Oxford University Press next year entitled Global Intersectionality and Contemporary Human Rights. Thanks so much for joining us, Joanna. Thanks so much for having me, Ruth. Joanna, you are regarded by many of your students and colleagues at the WNL Law School as one of the most pleasant people around, and we in lifelong <laughs> learning feel the same way. You recently co-hosted an educational travel program to Costa Rica. And on every single trip evaluation, you and your husband, J.D., were mentioned as being absolutely delightful. And yet, when I think about your areas of research and imagine this dark sector of human behavior, I have to ask, um, how do you manage to remain so positive and optimistic in the face of all that you've seen? Well, first of all, Thank you so much for that kind introduction. That's that's very kind of you to say. Uh, that's a great question. I think that I am optimistic by nature. And so despite working in areas where it can be disheartening, to say the least, uh, I always feel like there is reason for hope. And, and I work alongside some of the most impressive and inspiring women's human rights activists in the world. I, I have the great privilege of partnering with women's rights lawyers in places like Tanzania and Ghana uh, and other parts of, of Sub-Saharan Africa. And those are women that are doing so much for their communities and working so hard and, and sometimes with very few resources. And so I have a constant source of inspiration in those women and and that keeps me going. So there, there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful, I think. Well, let's begin by discussing your interest in social justice. It's a concept that is often in the news these days, and it's at the heart of your legal scholarship. But first, would you help us understand what social justice is and how you define it to your students? Sure. It's, in my mind, a broad concept, uh, one that encompasses a lot of different circumstances and a lot of different work that I and others do, I think at its core, one of the animating principles for me is, is equality. And so when people are, are not treated equally, when they're discriminated against, uh, that is an injustice. And one that, that I think the law 
can be useful in remedying. So for me, it's it's really about protecting the most vulnerable among us, whether that's um, people seeking asylum at our borders or people who are subject to mass in- incarceration uh, or women who aren't able to enjoy their full rights uh, around the world, both in the U.S. and, and across the globe. So for me, it's, it's really a fundamental principle of equality. Uh, and, and I think that I communicate that to my students, but I will also say that, that I think my students come to this work with their own conception of what social justice is. Um, and certainly in the classes that I teach in which social justice is a focus, students self-select in. Students are drawn to those courses in part because they care deeply about social justice issues. Well, how did you become interested in social justice? Wow, that's a great question. I feel like I feel like I was kind of hardwired for this work. I mean, some of my earliest memories as a kid involved what what I perceived as social justice issues then. Um, so I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, I I organized a fundraiser to save baby harp seals. <laughs> I I did this by selling t-shirts. I silk screened t-shirts that said, I save seals and raised, raised, I don't know, I can't even remember how much it was probably $200, not, not a huge amount of money. But well, it is um, when you're in fourth grade. Right. It seemed yeah. like it at the time. Uh, and, and I, I think in retrospect, I probably uh, committed copyright infringement because I stole the design for the seal from a, from a ch- popular children's <laughs> book at the time. But but anyway, I, I feel like I've always been concerned about changing the world. And um, and so ever since those early efforts, I, I have been fairly engaged in trying to think about how we can make the world a better place and a more equitable place. And and so that, that theme really has run throughout all of my work since fourth grade. <laughs> oh, thanks for st- sharing that story with us. That's just beautiful. What led you to law school then? Uh, some of the same ideas. I, I really, even as a uh, college student, was concerned about issues of equality. And and I was fortunate enough to take a, a civil rights class as an undergraduate. Uh, and I went to a, a small liberal arts college. But I took a course that was not really a pre-law. It wasn't a pre-professional course. It was really a liberal arts course. But it exposed me to the law as as a, a way to push a, a social justice, social change agenda. Um, and so by reading about these civil rights cases, I, I became convinced that that the law could be a really useful tool. And, and that was really my first exposure to um, to law. I don't come from a family of lawyers. I, I just began to view the law as the, the best mechanism for for creating social change. So, so that's really what drove me to law school. You've mentioned the difficulty of staying true to your original vision of working in social justice, particularly during law school. Would you tell us a little more about that struggle and what made it challenging? I think... In some ways, I was a, an atypical law student um, in the sense that I, I had a, a very specific idea of, of why I wanted to go to law school, and um, and it didn't involve getting a job at a big law firm, and so I, I 
charted my own path uh, through through law school. But but I did see a lot of people get kind of enticed by by the law firm lifestyle, and and there's a lot to be said for that. The the experience of being a second year law student as a summer associate at a, at a law firm in New York, for example, uh, where you're kind of wined and dined by the the law firm partners. It, it it's it, it's a nice life in many ways, uh, but it, it wasn't what I was particularly interested in. Uh, but I do think it's it's easy to get kind of uh, sucked into that lifestyle, and and then even even peers that that wanted to go into social justice work, I think after law school, um, found themselves in situations uh, with a New York apartment, for example, that that was a high rent apartment who who were then later unable to to make a move back into social justice. So, so I think staying true to those ideals was, was important to me. And I, I found a couple of ways to do that. Um, one was I volunteered during my time in law school at um, a domestic violence organization. And I also found paid employment, fortunately enough for me, uh, at a, an organization that was housed at my law school. It was a separate nonprofit organization, but, um, that gave me the opportunity to do some work on women's human rights. And that was, uh, in some ways, my first exposure to the application of, of women's rights principles across the globe. So for those students, then, who are also passionate about social justice, how do you encourage your students to pursue those interests? Well, I encourage students to look for every opportunity during law school to to explore work in that area. Um, and, and there's so many different types of social justice work um, that for students who are interested, I think there are a lot of opportunities to get involved during law school. And for employers who work in the nonprofit sector, a lot of what they're looking for in applicants after law school is a demonstrated commitment to that particular kind of social justice work. So so the best thing you can do as a law student who's interested in going into social justice work, I think, is to create a track record to demonstrate your interest in social justice work throughout law school. So so I, I try and help students look for those opportunities and take advantage of them while they're in law school um, so that those paths are easier to pursue once they graduate. Sounds like very sound advice. (laughs) So let's talk about your research in gender and the law and international human rights. I have to say that I'm especially intrigued by the international angle here. Would you tell us about your work in Africa and what led you there? I, I mentioned that the organization that I worked with in law school, and that was an organization that was a, a network women's rights organization. And, and the network had a very strong presence in sub-Saharan Africa when I was working there as a law student. So I established connections with some pretty amazing women's rights lawyers, uh, even when I was a law student. And so some of those lawyers were were plaintiffs themselves in, in groundbreaking women's rights litigation in their own countries. Uh, one of them was Unity Dow in Botswana, who brought uh, a, a pathbreaking women's rights case um, concerning citizenship law in Botswana. And so as a law student, I was able to sit down and 
talk to her about that experience. And, and, and there were many others like Unity Dow who, um, who I was able to, to get to know and talk to in law school. And so that, I think, really cemented what was an emerging interest in women's rights globally and particularly in Africa. And then the, the second thing is, is really happenstance, but I, I got a job uh, as a women's rights fellow after law school um, through a, a program at Georgetown called the Women's, Re- Women's Legal Rights Fellowship Program. Um, and that opportunity placed me in a clinic at Georgetown. So it was, it was part of Georgetown, Georgetown's law school. Uh, but that clinic was also doing a lot of work with women's rights in Africa. And so I just continued to build a network of women's rights lawyers who were doing important work um, on the continent. And those connections uh, continued even after I left Georgetown. So, so I really just built an incredible network of women's rights lawyers who were doing work in Africa. Uh, and, and I've been able to do some ongoing work with with some of those folks. So it's, it's been an interest for a long time. Um, and, and I feel very fortunate to have worked with some of the, the people that I've worked with over the years. So you talk about women's rights in Africa. Can you tell us specifically what some of the issues um, that you found and were working on? There are unfortunately no shortage of, of issues to work on. Um, and that's true all over the world. That's true here in the United States too. Uh, but one of the interesting aspects of, of my work in Africa has been uh, navigating plural legal systems. So in many of these countries in Africa, uh, there are multiple legal systems operating simultaneously. You have the, the statutory legal system, um, the religious legal system in some cases, and very often a, a separate system of customary law, which operates at the local level, often um, sometimes in informal settings. Uh, but but for many, many women throughout sub-Saharan Africa, customary law is, is the form of law that really dictates their rights under family law, personal law issues related to marriage and property. And so these are some of the most fundamental issues uh, that, that women face in the legal system. And they're determined more often than not in these uh, customary legal systems. So, so some of my work has been uh, devoted to looking at the clash between customary law and statutory law. Sometimes, not surprisingly, those, those legal systems are in conflict. And so it can become quite complicated to determine which is the applicable law and what women's rights are um, under the applicable law. So so the very fact of multiple legal systems operating simultaneously is is a complication, uh, but an interesting one that I've I've explored in my scholarship. Uh, Because customary law is is the form of law that, that most often impacts women in their personal lives, uh, much of my much of my work has been focused on women's rights under customary law, uh, but but gender based violence is a huge issue, uh, one that I've worked on in a number of countries there, and uh, also women's economic empowerment, women's uh, ability to buy and own property 
in, in certain countries often has a huge impact on their socioeconomic status. So, so that's, that is also a huge issue. And, and socioeconomic status is one of those cross-cutting issues that, that impacts so many other rights as well. You're an American woman working on women's rights in Africa. Are people skeptical of you as an outsider? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And yes, is the answer. I mean, I think rightly so. Um, one of the things that I've seen over the years is, is um, unfortunately, a number of people who, who practice human rights law um, do so with a kind of missionary zeal that doesn't always necessarily respect the the cultural traditions and the and the very people that that are most impacted by um, discriminatory laws and practices. So so I think that the way that you do human rights work is is very important. Um, and and for me that that means working in close partnership with with women's rights lawyers on the ground who who are most affected and most knowledgeable about um, local custom, local context. And so I really push back against um, the, the idea that, that human rights is a Western concept that, that is imposed on, um, on other countries. And, and in some cases, I've seen people practice human rights law that way. And I, I, it does not lead to positive outcomes for, for people in those countries. It creates a lot of resentment about the West imposing its own ideals on um, people who, who would not otherwise be interested. And so for me, the, the most effective way to do this work is, is through local partnerships that are really based on mutual respect and, um, and commitment to positive outcomes for women. So what are some of the similarities between the struggle for women's rights in the U.S. and some of the African countries you've worked in? Well, I think there is a fundamental similarity in terms of um, how patriarchal attitudes manifest in in women's daily lives. And and that is true across the board. I mentioned gender-based violence earlier. That's that's an area in which I've done a lot of work. Um, that is a universal. It's, it exists in every country that I think it's ever been examined. Um, and so that aspect of um, patriarchal existence is is just common throughout the world. And and so there are similarities like that in women's rights work um, that, that I think all stem from basic uh, gender subordination that, that really, unfortunately, is a common feature across countries. Mm-hmm. And so, so there really are similarities between the, the work that women's rights activists are doing here in the U.S. and um, in other parts of the world, including in sub-Saharan Africa, around gender-based violence. But that's just one example. I think there, there are a lot of other similarities too, but but really, all of them stemming from core notions of, of patriarchy. Well, now I'd like to shift the gears slightly and ask you about how all of this research has informed your scholarship. Your writing can be divided into a few different buckets, but it seems to me that the two biggest ones are women's rights in Africa 
and women's rights within the work of the United Nations. Can you tell us briefly about those categories of scholarship? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that's right. My my work has at least these two broad themes. Uh, and, and some of my work with respect to African women's rights really does try and grapple with um, this notion of customary law and and how it has been used to discriminate against women in some cases. Um, and there are uh, women, African women scholars who who write about customary law um, and and who's on whose work I, I rely. Uh, but I do think that that part of that is reconciling what are positive aspects of, of culture and, and what are uh, some aspects of culture that are that are particularly harmful to women. And um, and so some of that work is uh, looking at the, the legal frameworks. And, and in some countries, for example, the constitution itself uh, prohibits gender discrimination. In fact, in, in all of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa, there is a constitutional non-discrimination provision. So, so there's good law on the books protecting women's rights. But in some cases, in a small number of countries, um, five or so, there are provisions in the constitution that specifically exclude customary law from constitutional protection. So, so even though there is a, a non-discrimination provision in the constitution, there's another clause in the constitution that specifically excludes customary law. And so for women, that can be devastating because as I mentioned earlier, customary law is the very form of law that most dramatically impacts their day-to-day lives. It, it, determines rights within marriage, it determines rights within divorce, rights to inherit property. Uh, so many aspects of, of day-to-day life really are subject to customary law. So to have that specifically excluded from constitutional protection is, is a problem. Um, and so those are, are some of the things that, that I've written about. Um, and and I think that, that, again, this goes back to something I mentioned earlier, but, but there are some some Western scholars who who reject culture and customary rights wholesale. And that creates a lot of resentment, understandably, because there are wonderful, positive uh, aspects of, of custom and culture all across the world. And so so I think um, it's it's a matter of working very closely with with women who are most affected in these legal systems to determine what are those aspects of, of custom and culture that are truly harmful? And then, and then changing those while also maintaining the positive aspects of, of custom and culture that, that can be really, they can be sources of empowerment for, for women. So it's a, I think it's a nuanced approach to, to doing this kind of work. You've talked about early opportunities to work on human rights at the UN when you were in law school. Does your UN-related scholarship grow out of your work with the UN when you were a law student or a young lawyer? Ah, yes, that's the second bucket. <laughs> Thanks, Ruth. I forgot about the second bucket. <laughs> so it does, in fact. Uh, I I was lucky, and I mentioned this earlier too. Um, I found really meaningful employment while I was in law school through an organization called the International Women's Rights Action Watch, um, and. It was an organization that at the time was really the only organization 
in the world that was working directly with um, these UN treaty bodies. And those are the bodies that, that oversee the major human rights treaties in the world. And their job is to, to enforce the provisions of those treaties. Uh, and, and so I had a very early up close glimpse at, at how the UN works. And I worked with an organization that was really trying to help the UN by filling in gaps, um, by, by communicating to these treaty bodies local information that was coming directly from our network about how the laws were or were not being implemented on the ground. Um, and so our job was to get that very specific local information to these UN treaty bodies who, without that information, were relying solely on the information from government representatives about um, how well they were doing in implementing the treaty. And so not surprisingly, many of those government representatives came to New York and, and reported that they were doing a great job implementing <laughs> these human rights treaties. And and so our our job was to, in some cases that was true, and our job was to applaud them for those very positive developments, but also to give them a, a clearer picture of, of what was actually happening on the ground from, from the perspective of activists who were working in those countries. So it was a fantastic introduction to the work that the UN does. And um, and I, I was able to go with that organization to the Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing in 1995. Uh, and so as a as a law student, to have that kind of, of experience working with NGOs from around the world, and then also working um, with the team that was crafting the the platform for action, which was the the outcome document representing the consensus of, of all of the countries represented there um, that really became the blueprint for women's rights around the world. Um, that was also a fantastic experience. So I, I feel very lucky to have had those early formative experiences when I was a law student, but it, it absolutely shaped my approach to scholarship in, in later years. So I know from our conversations that you identify strongly as a teacher, a scholar, and an activist. Setting aside teaching, which I'll ask you about in a minute, do you see yourself primarily as a scholar or as an activist? Ooh, that, <laughs> that is a tough one, Ruth. I I have to say both. I I really do. I I see myself as a scholar and an activist, but but much of my scholarship is informed by the work that I do on the ground in close collaboration with women's rights lawyers in places like Tanzania. Um, and so I, I don't have a clear separation between my activist work and my scholarly work. And, uh, and I think that's important for scholarship to stay relevant, that it should grow out of, of the experience of people, people's lives. And, and so I think that, that I really approach my work as a blend of, of both of those, um, both as an activist and a scholar. And I hope that the scholarship also informs the activist work that I do. So it's, it's definitely a two-way street. We're going to move away from talking about your research and into teaching at WNL. But before we do, are there any books or documentaries or films or journals that you could recommend to our readers? 
Absolutely. Um, I think in terms of, well, these are both works of fiction, but, but they're interesting glimpses into um, women's empowerment and, and the kind of work that I do. One is a film called uh, Mulade, which is a, made by a Senegalese filmmaker. And it's, it's about um, female genital cutting and the experience of, of one woman working in her rural village to combat the practice. Um, and she begins by protecting her daughter, uh, but, but that story sort of evolves to include other children in the village and the resistance that she encounters um, and, and some of the support she garners among women within the village too. Uh, but, but it's really more than anything, a story of, of women's empowerment. She's an incredible figure in this film. Um, and, and so I, I love the film. I think it's fantastic and nuanced. Um, the other, the other book that I'd recommend is, is another, uh, work of fiction and, and not directly related to my research, but it's a fantastic read. And that is Americana, uh, and, that's a, a book, a novel about a Nigerian woman who moves to the U.S. and and is really attempting to navigate this new place and this new culture. And uh, and I think her struggle to create space for herself as a Nigerian American is is a fascinating look at cultural difference and. Um, so I would recommend that one too. I love it. It's also just beautifully written. Absolutely loved it. Oh, I can't wait to read it. I've known you for quite a while, so I wasn't surprised to hear that you originally intended to be an activist, and I wasn't surprised to hear about the SEAL story. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I was surprised to hear was that you fell into the teaching profession. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I... It's funny. I, I sometimes talk to students, and students will ask me, "Well, how did how did you get to where you are?" And and I feel like my professional path was somewhat circuitous. But but I I very much wanted to practice women's rights law when I graduated from law school, and um, I applied to a program called the Women's Law and Public Policy Fellowship Program that is a, a DC based fellowship program that really places women's rights lawyers uh, into NGOs or nonprofit organizations in DC that are working on a range of, of women's rights issues. So I envisioned myself as an activist when I applied to that program. Um, but it just so happened that my placement was at Georgetown's International Women's Human Rights Clinic, because at that point I had had a lot of, of experience working in women's human rights. And so um, from their perspective, it seemed like a logical placement for me. But but I when I first heard about it, I thought, well, wait a minute, this involves teaching. Oh, okay, that's not something I had <laughs> considered. But sure, if it allows me to do some work on women's rights, I'm all for it. I'm all in. And and it it turned out that I loved it. Uh, I loved the teaching parts of it too. And and because it was a a human rights clinic, it meant that I could maintain at least one foot in the activist world because we were working with students on real human rights problems um, and teaching at the same time that we were engaged in activist work. So, so again, it was this, this wonderful way to, 
to stay blended in both activism and teaching and scholarship. So it was a fantastic entree into teaching, but it, but it was not one that I had particularly planned for. <laughs> I well, just it worked well up. for you. It did. It, did. <laughs> it absolutely did. And, and I discovered that I love teaching. So I haven't looked back since. So this might be like asking which child is your favorite, <clears throat> but do you have a favorite class to teach? Oh, I, I do. It's a clear favorite. In my world, I teach a class called um, Internet, the International Human Rights Practicum, and it is very similar to some of the early clinical work that I did because it's it's based on this idea that that I work with a small group of students and um, we partner with a local human rights organization. Um, in the in most recent years, I've I've collaborated with an, a women's rights organization in Tanzania and. Um, the students are engaged in real human rights work with that organization under my supervision. So, so we work together with the organization generally to, to do a fact-finding project. Um, and the focus of the project just depends on, on what the immediate needs of, of our local partner are. Uh, but, but if they need research on, for example, child marriage, um, if they're taking on that issue and they need some more documentation of what's actually happening, they'll bring us in and we work with them closely. And in the beginning part of the semester, I teach the students all there is to know about that particular human rights issue and all of the relevant domestic law and all of the relevant international human rights law. And, and we also work on, on legal interviewing and we practice legal interviewing and so that they're ready to hit the ground running. And then we actually travel. I, I take them to work shoulder to shoulder with these women's rights lawyers um, in, in Tanzania, for example. And it's dramatically different to teach human rights law this way, as opposed to reading about it in a book, which I've also yeah. done and, you know, which can be interesting as well, but it is a completely different experience when when you're able to immerse students in the actual work and and they're engaged in in conducting interview after interview of of all the stakeholders in the legal system in an effort to determine how the law is actually operating in practice as opposed to what the law says on the books and it's it's a fascinating exercise every single time and i love it the students love it and and we're we're actually engaged in in real work that our our partners appreciate, um, and so it's I think it's rewarding all the way around, um, and that's my favorite class to teach. Uh, by far. So it sounds like a pretty niche focus. Do you get students who aren't going to practice human rights law in this class? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Students students take the class for a variety of reasons, but uh, I always tell students, and I firmly believe this, that that what we're teaching them in a class like this is legal problem solving. And that's a skill that they're going to use no matter what area of law they go into, what area of law they end up practicing. And so at its core, it's about using the skills that they've developed throughout law school, legal analysis, legal writing, oral communication, um, creativity and problem solving. And all of cross cultural communication is essential in doing this kind of work. So these are these are skills that they're going to need when they practice law, no matter what field. 
and they really are transferable skills. Uh, but they're also they're also very useful skills in life too, beyond the practice of yeah. law. So <laughs> these these are are very helpful. But but when they when they go into an uh, a fact finding interview with me in this context, in the context of this class, it's not dissimilar from going into um, a deposition, for example, in more traditional legal practice, where you may have one opportunity to ask this person really important salient legal questions that could determine the outcome of your case. And so so getting it right and going in with the, the right amount of preparation and the right understanding of, of the questions at issue is essential. And so again, they're, they're transferable skills. And, and I think students, uh, students who go on to do law firm work, for example, carry those skills with them. But I, there's one other thing that I think they carry with them. And I think that is a commitment to, to doing good work in whatever way, shape or form. So it may not be that they ever practice anything close to international human rights work. But I also believe that some of those students are going to go on to law firm practice and do pro bono work. Uh, and so I hope that that in addition to giving them the skills they need for legal practice, I, I hope that that this also inspires them to to do pro bono work and the kind of volunteer work, um, no matter where they end up. Yeah. And, and, and working side by side with those folks in Africa probably make them more empathetic lawyers. Absolutely. No, yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned empathy. It's one of the things that that I actually talk explicitly about in in my class and and it is one of the most critical skills that that you can have as a lawyer. Um, so it's something we talk about. It's it is something that I think is absolutely necessary to foster in students and in practicing lawyers. Um, it's it's something that I think comes out of um, my background in liberal arts and my commitment to liberal arts thinking. I think you know all of the skills that I've just talked about with respect to this class creativity and problem solving and empathy and cross-cultural communication. Those are all liberal arts skills. So, yeah. so these are, these are things that I value and that I think are, are necessary ingredients for success. Um, no matter what profession we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I agree wholeheartedly. What drew you to Washington and Lee and what have you enjoyed the most about teaching here? I think, it's hard to distill that into one or two things. There, there are so many things that I love about about being here. Uh, I think one of the things that drew me initially to Washington and Lee was was the sense of community here. And I know everybody talks about it. It's, it almost sounds cliche because it is so much a part of of it's how true. we identify with this place. Yeah. It is. It's absolutely yeah. true. Um, but but there is a strong sense of community, and and I felt that when I visited here, it, it was palpable to me that, that the students felt that sense of community, that, that my faculty colleagues feel that sense of community. Uh, and, and I think that is extraordinary. I, I don't think you find that everywhere. And partly that's a product of, of our small size. Uh, partly it's a product of, of the culture here, but, but I do think it, it is something that, that sets this institution apart and, that is absolutely part of what drew me here. So for the benefit of our undergraduate alumni who didn't make it over to the law school much, what is life like in Lewis Hall? It is 
defined in many ways by that same sense of community. Um, I, I think in law school, there is often a sense of competition among students. Um, and I'm talking about law schools across the country. Um, in general. In general. Yeah. There, there, there is a lot of competition. There's competition for jobs. There, there is a lot riding on academic performance. And so students tend to be competitive. They compare themselves to their colleagues. They want to do better. Um, and, and what's interesting about WNL is, is there, there really isn't that same sense of competition among students. Um, I think students really celebrate each other's successes here in a way that is uncommon and they support each other. Um, they're, to go back to this notion of community, I'm sorry, it sounds like a broken record, but, but there really is there really is a sense of community in the law school as well. Um, but but that is unusual for law school environments. Although I think that's consistent with the sense of community on the undergrad side, it it also takes on new meaning in the law school context because it is so atypical for for a law school to foster that that sense of, of community among students. So your husband, J.D. King, is also a law professor at WNL. What's it like to be married to another law professor? You guys must have some spectacular arguments. <laughs> well, in fact, we do. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how much of that is related to both being lawyers, but probably some of it, I'm sure. Um, no, we, we once got into a, an argument a fairly significant argument over a book that neither one of us had read. <laughs> I think you, you have to you have to have two lawyers to be that invested in a position, a completely uninformed position about a book. Uh, but but we both, I think, over the years, mellowed a little bit, and and uh, kids will do that to you, I think. But actually, it's funny in in looking at our kids and thinking about our our parenting. I think that that may be the biggest area in which having two lawyers in the family um, leaves a mark. And and so our kids have always been looking for loopholes in all the rules that we set down. <laughs> it's a very lawyerly skill, <laughs> which and you I see it all the time. Oh, that's so funny. Do you feel like any of them will follow in your footsteps? Well, I think there's a Good chance. Yes, absolutely. My my oldest in particular has already um, articulated an interest in law and and how he gets it honestly. I mean, I think he he's the prime example of of looking for a loophole in our rules, but he's also the child that at age three uh, was walking to work with my husband, who's a criminal defense lawyer, and they at the subway in DC encountered a police officer who was going to be testifying in one of JD's cases um, for the prosecution. And, and JD was, was the defense lawyer involved. Um, and so they weren't talking about the case obviously, but, but they were chatting. And um, my son who was three at the time, this is our oldest said to the police officer, well, what do you do? This is a child who was never really afraid of talking to adults. And, and the police officer said, well, well, my job is to catch the bad guys. And my son thought about it for a minute and he said, well, just remember, everybody makes mistakes. <laughs> so I, I thought, okay. Only out of the mouths of a child of a defense lawyer. Right. But, oh, but that's fantastic. Are, they're always absorbing this. And so um, 
there's a fair amount of shop talk at home, for sure. So I really enjoyed seeing the photos from your sabbatical last year in Costa Rica. It looked like it was a family affair with JD and your kids there as well. For those of us who are not in academia, can you explain how sabbaticals serve to advance the professional interest of a university professor? Oh, absolutely. Uh, My sabbaticals have been critical in terms of giving me the time and space to advance my scholarly agenda. Um, this, this most recent scholarship, uh, I'm sorry, this most recent sabbatical in, in Costa Rica is, is really the reason that I was able to write the book that's coming out next year. Um, and so for me, part of it is, is disconnecting. And we were in a place where I was completely unplugged. I wasn't connected to, um, my kid's school or, obligations outside of work. I wasn't connected to committee meetings that were happening that I felt pulled into. I mean, there, there really are advantages to, to being someplace else where you can really immerse yourself in the scholarship. And so that's what I, that's what I found so valuable about Costa Rica. Uh, and JD too, he was working on um, writing an article and just being completely separate from other obligations allows you to completely immerse yourself in the the work at hand. And for him, that was working on a, an article that'll come out next year. And, and for me, it was ma- making major progress on this book. And so it was just an extraordinary opportunity uh, to do that. And, and our kids have been really wonderful participants in all of this throughout the years. And the last sabbatical that we took um, was five and a half years ago. And, and that was, uh, on a Fulbright, JD got a Fulbright to, to do some research in Chile for six months. And then I got a Fulbright for the following six months to do some research in Tanzania. And so our kids in that year spent six months living in Chile and attending school and making friends. And, and they had an extraordinary experience culturally and otherwise in Chile. And then we came home for about a week, did a whole bunch of laundry, repacked our bags, and moved <laughs> to Tanzania for six months. And so I was able to do some some immersive research in Tanzania, and and the kids had a completely different cultural experience there. And and so as a family, it was unbelievably rewarding to be able to expose our kids to those very different places and to make friends and make connections in those places and to get some really valuable time for research. It was just extraordinary. It's invaluable. It sounds like a fabulous educational experience all the way around. It was. It really was. And and our kids remember those experiences so fondly. It's I really feel like it's a gift we were able to give them too. Yeah, sure. To wrap up, many of our listeners will know you as an educator, but I'm sure they'd like to hear more about what your interests are outside of the classroom. What do you do and what do you enjoy when you're not on campus? That's a great question. I spend a lot of time with my kids and and as a family, we do a lot of hiking. We do a lot of biking. Um, We're we're active uh, and, and we're fortunate enough to live in a place where there are are endless possibilities for outdoor pursuits. So we spend a lot of time outdoors. Um, 
I'm a soccer player. I, I rediscovered my love of the sport in my 40s, which, which was wonderful, but it did it did lead to a hip injury. So <laughs> there's a as downside like that too. too as we get older. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But um but I we also spent a lot of time um reading and playing games and doing puzzles together and and um we collectively really value family time. So, so we spend a lot of time engaged in those kinds of activities too. Uh, and, you know, with our current circumstances under this pandemic, there's been uh, no shortage of time for things like reading and puzzles and hiking. So we've done a lot. Of Isn't that true? Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned reading, what are you reading right now? Uh, it's, it's a little out of character for me, but I'm reading two books uh, that are nonfiction books one is uh, written by a, a poet, although it's not a book of poetry, it's a book of essays, but it was written by a poet named Ross Gay, uh, and the book is called The Book of Delights, and it's it's an extraordinary book. It's it's a series of essays that he wrote that, that are, each one of them, relishing some small delight in his life um, that would otherwise go unnoticed, and so he's he's actually trying to make up make it a practice to observe and appreciate these small delights in his life and he writes about them and he writes about them in a way that is just beautiful i mean he's he is a poet so so even in this this other genre he's he's fantastic in his writing and um so i've really enjoyed that and and then the other book is a book of poems by um a friend and colleague named leah green um who's written this this truly wonderful book called The More Extravagant Feast. And and her book uh, won the Walt Whitman Award last year in, in 2019 for poetry. So it's, it's a collection that is truly the most beautiful poetry I've ever read in my life. And, um, and I'm so glad that she's getting recognition for for the book, because I think it is one of those books that, that is transformative. And, and I, ran into her the other day and, and told her I'm, I'm allowing myself only one poem per day because it's a, it's a relatively short collection and I just want it to last. <laughs> I don't want to finish it. So I'm trying to read them sparingly, but um, I highly recommend that one too. Both of those sound perfect for this time we're experiencing right now. Oh, absolutely. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Those little happy places where you can grab them. That's for sure. Yes. Do you have a Favorite place to eat in Lexington, and what's your go-to order? One of the things I love about our little small town is that that we have so many great restaurants. Uh, but but I do have a favorite, and and it's the Red Hen, uh, and they have a menu that changes periodically. So so I I love that too. I feel like every time I go in, I'm surprised. Uh, but they've fortunately recently been doing uh, curbside pickup and takeout. So I've been taking advantage of that. And, and, and the cocktails it. as well. And the, the yeah, they've got some pretty fabulous ones that <laughs> they're putting into go containers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My current favorite is a lavender lemon martini that is just to die for. It's oh. exquisite. That sounds delicious. Yes. For our alumni who have recently graduated, what do you wish you had known when you had just started out? That is a fantastic question. Uh, I think 
that what I would love to say to a young undergrad or young law student just starting out is have confidence in your own abilities. I feel like it took me years to build up that that sense of confidence. Um, and I don't think I appreciated at an early stage that I had the skills necessary to, to do what I wanted to do. And, and so if I could just instill in these young graduates this sense that, that they have what they need to go out and, and make the world a better place if that's what they choose to pursue, uh, I think I think that would be what I'd love to impart to students. And, and I mentioned, I mentioned being a graduate of a, of a liberal arts college. I think that our, our students at WNL are so lucky to be graduating from, from a wonderful liberal arts institution. And I'm a firm believer in liberal arts education. I think that, that it is a, the type of education that really prepares students and graduates to, to succeed in whatever, work they do uh, because it, it's the focus is on core problem solving skills. Um, and, and so graduates really do have what they need. They may not have the precise professional expertise, but they have the ability to develop that expertise and to develop it in a, in a fairly short period of time. So, so I would instill to the extent possible confidence in those graduates if I could. Well, Joanna, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Likewise, Ruth. Thanks so I much. Loved it. Loved it. Thanks, as always, to you for listening. We hope you discovered something new. To read more about today's podcast and check out other ways to continue your lifelong learning with WNL, you can head to our website, wlu.edu/slash lifelong. You'll also find WNL's faculty reading list, sheltering in place with a few good books, and information on how to join our new WNL book club. We hope you'll join us back here again soon. Thanks again, and until then, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.